Shashi Tharoor in many of his books and in fact many debates and speeches he mentions the horrors of British colonialism in India and that's what I found in his book called India Shastra although this book is pretty much about today's politics, today's India and all the issues social and political that are there but in one of the chapters he goes back once again to the colonial times and what happened there and I don't think anybody else puts it more eloquently than Shashitarur. So in this podcast what I'm going to do I'm going to read from one of these chapters and the chapter is called The Ravages of Colonialism and in this chapter in very specific terms with data and citing relevant sources he makes this case against British colonialism and how much it harmed India so I'm going to narrate this part in today's podcast so let's start at the beginning of the 18th century India's share of the world economy was 23% as large as all of Europe put together by the time we won independence in 1947 it had dropped to less than 4% the reason was simple India was governed for the benefit of Britain Britain's rise for 200 years was financed by its depredations in India Britain's industrial revolution was built on the deindustrialization of India the destruction of Indian textiles and their replacement by manufacturing in England using Indian raw material and exporting the finished products back to India and the rest of the world. The handloom weavers of Bengal had produced and exported some of the world's most desirable fabrics, especially cheap but fine muslins, some light as woven air. Britain's response was to cut off the thumbs of Bengali weavers, break their looms and impose duties and tariffs on Indian cloth while flooding India and the world with cheaper fabric from the new satanic steam mills of Britain. Weavers became beggars, manufacturing collapsed. The population of Dhaka, which was once the great centre of muslin production, fell by 90%. So instead of a great exporter of finished products, India became an importer of British ones, while its share of world exports fell from 27% to 2%. Colonialists like Robert Clive bought their rotten boroughs in England with the proceeds of their loot in India. Loot, by the way, was a word they took into their dictionary as well as their habits. While publicly marveling at their own self-restraint in not stealing even more than they did. And the British had the gall to call him Clive of India, as if he belonged to the country, when all he really did was to ensure that much of the country belonged to him. By the end of the 19th century, India was Britain's biggest cash cow 
the world's biggest purchaser of British exports and the source of highly paid employment for British civil servants, all at India's own expense. We literally paid for our own oppression. As Britain ruthlessly exploited India, between 15 and 29 million Indians died tragically unnecessary deaths from starvation. The last large-scale famine to take place in India was under British rule. None was taken place since free democracies, any democracy rather, don't let their people starve to death. Some 4 million Bengalis died in the Great Bengal Famine of 1943 after Winston Churchill deliberately ordered the diversion of food from starving Indian civilians to well-supplied British soldiers and European stockpiles. The starvation of any way underfed Bengalis is less serious than that of sturdy Greeks, he argued. In any case, the famine was their fault for breeding like rabbits. When officers of conscience pointed out in a telegram to the Prime Minister the scale of the tragedy caused by his decisions, Churchill's only response was to ask peevishly, Why hasn't Gandhi died yet? British imperialism had long justified itself with the pretense that it was enlightened despotism conducted for the benefit of the governed. Churchill's inhumane conduct in 1943 gave the lie to this myth. But it had been battered for two centuries already. British imperialism had triumphed not just by conquest and deception on a grand scale, but by blowing rebels to bits from the mouths of cannons, massacring unarmed protesters at Jallianwala Bagh and upholding iniquity through institutionalized racism. Whereas as late as the 1940s, it was possible for a black African to say with pride, Moi, je suis Francais. No Indian in the colonial era was ever allowed to feel British. He was always a subject, never a citizen. And no wonder the sun never set on the British Empire. Even God couldn't trust the Englishman in the dark. What are the arguments for British colonialism benefiting the subcontinent? It is often claimed that the British bequeathed India its political unity. But India had enjoyed cultural and geographical unity throughout the ages going back to Emperor Ashoka in the 3rd century BC and Adi Shankara, travelling from Kerala to Kashmir, from Dwarka to Puri in the 7th century AD, thereby establishing his temples everywhere. As a result, the yearning for political unity existed throughout. Warriors and kings tried to dominate the entire subcontinent, usually unsuccessfully. But with modern transport and communications, national unity would have been fulfilled without colonial rule, just as in equally fragmented 19th century Italy. And what political unity can we celebrate when the horrors of part partition, which means 1 million dead, 13 million displaced, billions of rupees of property destroyed, they all were the direct result of 
deliberate British policies of divide and rule that fomented religious antagonisms. The construction of the Indian railways is often pointed to as benefit of British rule, ignoring the obvious fact that many countries have built railways without having to be colonized to do so. Nor were the railways laid to serve the Indian public. They were intended to help the British get around and above all to carry Indian raw materials to the ports to be shipped to Britain. The movement of people was incidental except when it served colonial interests. No effort was made to ensure that supply matched demand for mass transport. In fact, the Indian railways were a big British colonial scam. British shareholders made absurd amounts of money by investing in the railways, where the government guaranteed extravagant returns on capital, double that of British government stock, because the difference was paid for by Indian taxes. Thanks to British, a mile of Indian railways cost double that of a mile in Canada and Australia. It was a splendid racket for the British, who made all the profits, controlled the technology and supplied all the equipment, which meant once again that the benefits went out of India. It was a scheme described at the time as private enterprise at public risk. Private British enterprise at public Indian risk. Despite such flagrant exploitation, Apologists for the British have sought to claim credit for giving India the rule of law. Of course, we are glad to have it. But Britain has saddled us with an adversarial system, excessively bogged down in procedural formalities, a legacy of interminable trials and long pending cases far removed from India's traditional systems of justice. And laws are enforced by a colonial era police system based on the Irish constabulary, not the London boppy under colonialism. Policing was an instrument of oppression rather than empowerment. And we are still living with the consequences of that. Still, it is argued that Britain left us with self-governing institutions and the trappings of democracy. To anyone who knows how hard it was to win a smidgen of self-government after many broken British promises, this is preposterous. Let me cite one who actually lived through the colonial experience, Jawaharlal Nehru. British rule, Nehru wrote in 1936 in a letter to a liberal Englishman, Lord Lothian, is based on an extreme form of widespread violence in the only sanction is fear. It suppresses the usual liberties which are supposed to be essential to the growth of people. It crushes the adventurous, the brave, the sensitive and the courages of the courages the timid. The opportunist and time serving, the sneak and the bully. It surrounds itself with a vast army of spies and informers and agents, provocateurs. Is this the atmosphere in which the more desirable virtues grow or democratic institutions flourish? 
Nehru went on to speak of the crushing of human dignity and decency, the injuries to the soul as well as the body, which degrades those who use it as well as those who suffer from it. This injury to India's soul, the very basis of a nation's self-respect, is what is always overlooked by apologists for colonialism. The English language comes next on the claimed credit list. It too was not a deliberate gift but an instrument of colonialism. As Macaulay explained the purpose of English education, we must do our best to form a class who may be interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern. A class of persons, Indians in blood and colour, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. The language was taught to a few to serve as intermediaries between the rulers and the ruled. That we seized the English language and turned it into an instrument for our own liberation was to our credit, not by British design. Of course, we couldn't have enjoyed Shakespeare and P.G. Woodhouse without the English language. But clearly a non-colonial Britain could have sent us a whole bunch of toothsome VSOs instead of sturdy Welsh master, sergeants and a free India would have learned the language better. So that was just one part from the book and there is obviously too many other things in there. And uh, I'm sure when you read the book you'll enjoy that. The author again and again right from the beginning keeps coming back to the idea of idea of India and shows us the idea of India in the historical context, in the modern context. And then what is going on today and where India is headed, what are the possibilities and what are the opportunities. So when you read this book, you'll learn a hell lot of things about India. Which I'm sure is something that you do anytime you pick a Shashi Tharoor's book, isn't it? <laughs>